This morning, I want to tackle the topic of prep. And just to get us all on the same page right from the get-go, and it's going to require a little bit of audience participation, uh, who wishes they prayed more? Hands nice and high. Who, who wishes they, they prayed more often, longer, more effectively, whatever it is, who's in that boat? Most of us, yeah? Um, I'm glad it wasn't just me that put my hand up, otherwise it'd be a very awkward and very short message. Uh, <laughs> but, but look, if I'm being honest, prayer is one of those weird things, right? Uh, because I think for most of us here, we, we actually have a pretty good understanding of what prayer is. We, we know what it is, what it isn't, what it's for, what it's not. Uh, that's not about like convincing God to do what we want him to do. And you know, we know that God hears our prayers and, and sometimes he answers yes, sometimes he answers no, uh, sometimes he says not right now. Uh, if you're here and you grew up Baptist, you can probably list off at least three different structures for how to organize and lay out your prayers. Uh, for me, my favorite is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Uh, and yay, if you know what that means. Uh, if you grew up Pentecostal, you can probably pray in tongues, but that's a different sort of sermon. Uh, and I can guarantee that most of you probably know the Lord's Prayer. See, see most of us, we actually have a pretty good understanding of prayer. And yet, we often find ourselves in these situations where we don't pray as often, we don't pray as effectively or as powerfully or as, as long as we would like. Uh, in fact, theologian D.A. Carson once said, if you really want to embarrass the average Christian, and I'll put all pastor there in brackets, just ask them to tell you about his or her private prayer life. And it's true, right? And look, that actually frightens me a little bit because uh, you see in the evening service, we're walking our way through the book of Acts and you cannot pick up that book, but, but, but just be bombarded with the fact that people are praying all the time. That in nearly every chapter, someone is praying about something. Uh, in fact, the word prayer itself occurs 32 times across the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And what frightens, uh, what worries me about that for both myself personally and, and us as a congregation is that something that was once fundamental and foundational to being a Christian has over time become something that is simply supplementary to me and you today. And so look, this morning I, I don't want to give an apologetic for prayer. I don't wanna jump into theology or theory about how we're supposed to pray. I don't wanna talk about uh, practices or habits because as important as those things are, I don't think they're actually the answer we need. No, all I wanna do this morning is walk through the story in the Bible of a character called Hannah who prayed a desperate prayer. Because at the end of the day, the answer to a better prayer life, it isn't better doctrine, it isn't better discipline, the answer is desperation that you and I need to realize how desperately we actually rely on God in our day-to-day -day life and therefore how desperately we should be clinging on to him in prayer. Does that sound okay this morning? Awesome. Uh, so if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, and we'll be kicking off at verse 1. Uh, and look, I'm going to give myself a little bit of an outcher. There are a lot of names in this first couple of verses. I'm gonna try to pronounce them, but give me a little bit of grace. Uh, okay, verse one. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. The son of Yeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. There we go, got through it. Uh, he had two wives. 
The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. All right, so the story this morning, it starts by introducing us to this family. Uh, So we've got Elkanah, who we're told is a a good, God-fearing man. You know, he goes to the temple, he goes to church, and uh, he he offers sacrifices to the Lord on a regular basis. Uh, And then we have his two wives, uh, Peninnah and Hannah. And yes, to address the issue, I did say two wives, Uh, which brings up the question I'm sure all of you are asking this morning, does the Bible, does God support polygamy? Uh, and, And clearly the answer is no. Uh, that both in the Old and the New Testament, it is abundantly clear that God's plan for marriage is that it would be a covenant between one man and one woman for one lifetime. And I know that's a bit of a controversial thing, to, a statement to make in, in our culture, the times we are living in today, but that is simply the truth of Scripture. Uh, but, but that being said, there are clearly times in the, the biblical narrative where people step outside of that plan, and they take for themselves more than one wife. And what we find is nearly every time that happens in the Bible, it leads to issue after issue after issue. Uh, Abraham had Sarah and Hagar, uh, which is just an absolute mess, and we're still dealing with the repercussions of that today. Uh, Jacob had Leah and Rachel, which nearly tore apart their family. Uh, And then Solomon, despite being the wisest man to ever exist, uh, decided to take for himself over a thousand uh, wives and concubines, and that just about tore apart the nation of Israel that it does not go well when when people step outside of God's plan for things. And and so that's exactly the sort of situation we find ourselves in here. See, what we're told in verse 4 is, uh, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, so the days when Elkanah went to church, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And a rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So you've got this situation where, you know, they're going to church and Elkanah's giving some of the money for the kids to to drop in the offering boxes that comes around and and he gives Hannah a double portion of that amount. And verse 7, so it went on, year by year. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Right, so let's just park it there for a second because that, that one verse, verse seven, there's a lot of pain there, right? See, we're painted this picture of Hannah who, despite knowing God and having a relationship with God and, and you know, loving God, she is just going through some real hurt in her life. And, and it's not like a moment of pain. It's not like a season she can push through and just get on with her life. It is year by year. And see, what commentators say has probably happened here is that uh, Elkanah probably married Hannah first, right? She, she was the wife that he actually wanted, the wife that was chosen, uh, and yet after a season of being married to her, he realized she couldn't bear any children. And so despite loving and caring for this woman, he, he goes out and he finds himself a new wife to provide for him what Hannah couldn't. And look, I know that seems kind of weird in our mindset and through our um, sort of cultural view, but it actually would have made a whole lot of sense for, for Okan. 
See, the way it worked back then is quite simply kids were just equal to wealth in those times. Uh, that if you had a lot of boys, then you, know, you could have a bigger farm and you can get more work done and then you can make more money and you can live a more comfortable life. And if you want any security in your old age, then, well, that's also gonna require children. Because again, the way it worked, well, they didn't have super contributions, so uh, essentially when you got to the point where you could no longer physically work on your property or on your trade or whatever it is, you'd hand over the reins to your children and they would take over the business and they would provide for you. So again, it makes a whole lot of sense from Alcana's perspective to go out and find himself a new wife. But can you just imagine how Hannah has to process through that? Like, like every day, she, she's going into town and uh, every day she's just surrounded by the fact that, that everyone else has these kids following along with them and, and she's doing it alone. And, and what makes it worse is she gets home and you know, she's met by the sounds of kids laughing and playing in the backyard, but they're not hers. They're Alcana's, or they're, they're Penina's. And, and she walks into the house and she puts the shopping down and, and every day Penina walks past and she's just got to make some sort of comment. Oh, Hannah, I'm a bit busy with the kids today. Do you think, think you could make dinner? Oh, Hannah, you're looking so, so well-rested at the moment. I guess that's what happens when you don't have any kids to keep you up at night. Oh, Hannah, my, my kids are getting so big. Don't you miss it when they were smaller and you could just carry them around? Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. And like it's bad enough when other people make that sort of comment by accident because they don't know her situation, but Penina knows it and she's rubbing it in Hannah's face each and every day. And like sure, Hannah could probably take some solace from the fact that she's Alcana's favorite wife. But I mean, the only reason there's a second at all is because she didn't have what it took. Because she wasn't enough. But there is a lot of pain that Hannah is going through. And so look, I wonder for you this morning, what is the pain that you are walking through? What is it that every day you wake up and you turn to God and you're like, God, again? I've got to deal with this again? What is it that every day the enemy is just like rubbing it into your face and provoking you grievously and just pointing it out to you every day? Is it a prodigal son? Is, is it a broken marriage? Is it a, a diagnosis that, that you just don't know what to deal with? Or, and, and look, I don't even know how to deal with this properly. Maybe like Hannah, it is infertility. And, and maybe like Hannah, you're left asking the question, is something wrong with me? And look, I'm not a woman, I've never had to go through that process, so this is sort of like a Catholic priest talking about uh, marriage, but, but from what I've seen, for, for those that are going through that sort of pain, is, it, it just hurts. And, and like, it makes no sense to me, because the people I see that are, that are struggling with that sort of issue, it's like, well, they would make awesome godly parents. And, and, you know, they'd love their kids, they'd raise them up in the church, they, they'd pray with them every night, they'd teach them the Bible, that they would grow up to be awesome uh, adults who would just glorify God, and yet for whatever reason, that's just not happening. And, and look, if that is you this morning, I just want to say, God sees you. But like, just like Hannah, he hears your cries, he hears your pain.
And I don't want to belittle that pain or make light of it. It is real. But can I just say that first and foremost, your identity is not found in your fertility. That every follower of Jesus is called a child of the king, and that is what we identify ourselves first and foremost as. But with that being said, in Genesis, when Adam names his wife Eve, the reason he does that it is because Eve means mother of all things. And that is before she has a single kid. And what I want to say for every adult woman in this room this morning, whether you are 21 or 102, what we need for you to do as a church community and as, as a people who are following after God is we need you to be good, godly mothers for the next generation. And for sure, that means some of you are going to be raising your own flesh and blood in your own homes every single day, but it also means for a whole lot of you this morning, you are going to be raising the next generation here on Sunday and during the week, and you are going to be spiritual mothers to the next generation, because church, that is what we need. See, whatever the pains that you are walking through this morning, what I need you to know is God actually sees it. He hears your cries and, and what that pain is supposed to do is bring you back to God. In fact, I would go as far as saying it's supposed to make us desperate for God. Uh, that second Corinthians says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that our pain should bring us back to God. And I'm not saying God is causing your pain, he's not causing your heartache, but he is definitely using it. That every moment of pain has a purpose, and although it may not seem like it right now, he is bringing you onto himself. And see, what we're about to see for Hannah is this pain, it, it draws her to God and it draws her to prayer. And church, that should be our response as well. And so, verse 8, uh, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Look, I've only been married for all of two seconds at this point, but um, I, I can already tell this is not, not a good response. Um, so, <laughs> uh, guys, I would suggest avoiding the what is wrong with you, am I not better than ten sons lines with your wives. Uh, verse 9, after they had eaten and drunken in Shiloh, Hannah rose, uh, which is this Hebrew idiom for making a decisive move. She made a decision. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed. And she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Right, so, so Hannah leaves her family. She leaves the festivities and the party and, and the meal they're having. She makes this decisive move. And, and what she decides she's going to do, she's going to leave that space and she's going to go and seek out God. She's going to pursue God in the temple and in prayer. Uh, and in verse 10, when it says she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, literally in the Hebrew, what it says there is she was bitter in soul and wailed in anguish. Church, this is not a woman who was hiding her emotions from God. This isn't Hannah going away to go and say her prayers. This is Hannah praying to her God passionately. And look, if this is the only thing you take away from this morning's message, then what I need you to know is you do not have to be fake with God. 
that a real Jesus went to the real cross to, the, to die for the real you. And so the fake you, he, he's doing just fine and you can leave him at home. But, but that mask you put up at work, that, that, that mask you put up in your small group during the week, the, the mask you put on before you come through these doors on a Sunday, it does you no good if that is how you come to God. So you see, Hannah's coming to God and she is an absolute mess. She's got tears and snot falling down her face. She is yelling. She is screaming. She is coming to God with every inch of emotion, frustration, anger, bitterness, pain, and hurt that this situation is causing her. And look, church, I think as Christians, especially as Christians in a setting like this where it looks like we're all doing really well and everything is up and to the right, this can be a huge pitfall for us. Because again, I can guarantee you there are people in this room who are going through some real hurt this morning. Like real pain. And yet what happens is you walk through these doors and our greeting team, they they say hi and they say, how are you going? And and you just respond with, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. Or like you went to small group this week with these people who are supposed to be your brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and at the end of the, the time together, they say, hey, is there anything we can pray about? And, and you just say something small like, oh, just, just peace. Just peace. And if you're honest, you need a whole lot more than peace. Because if you're honest, you actually cried yourself to sleep every day this last week. If you're honest, you fought with your wife the whole way to church about the same thing you've been arguing over for the last six months. If you're honest, things are not okay. And yet we just rock up to church and we put that smile and we say, yep, everything is good. And look, I'm not saying you need to pour out your life story to every single person you meet, but we need to be real with someone. That there need to be people in your life that you can take that mask off. That The Bible actually says we're to confess our sins and our brokenness to God for forgiveness but we're to confess them to other people for healing. And so it does us no good if all we do is rock up to God and we are just fake with him. That you you pray your anger, you pray your pain, you pray your frustration, and you pray your tears to God. So so look, let let me ask you. Do you pray to God with the same intensity as your feelings are towards those issues. And I know that sounds a bit weird when I say it like that. Let me give you some examples. Do you pray over your finances with the same level of anxiety as you have about them? Like like if you're up all night and you're trying to work out how to make ends meet and, and how to cover your bills and just get to the end of the month, well, do you spend as much time and emotional energy praying over those same finances that God would provide for you in a supernatural way? Or do you pray for your spouse with the same intention that you prayed for them when you were dating? Or to step on some toes this morning, uh, do you pray with the same intensity as you argue with your spouse? And look, I can't, definitely couldn't be speaking from experience after a month of marriage, but um, do you ever have a full-blown argument with your spouse? Like, like yelling, slamming doors, the whole shebang, because apparently that's what people do. Uh, <laughs> Do, do, do you have those sort of arguments and then go away and, and pray to God like a small prayer like, oh God, just bless my spouse? Or, or do you fall on your knees and pray for his forgiveness and reconciliation over the, uh, the relationship with the same intensity 
that you just spent arguing with them? Do you pray uh, for your family members and friends that they don't know Jesus, like they're actually heading on a one-way journey to eternal separation from him? Do you pray over your kids like, like you are desperately longing for them to come and grow up and know Jesus in a world that will constantly tell them he does not exist? See, church, God calls us to pray passionately. That we are to pray like we realize how desperate the situation is apart from him. And God has given each and every one of us the swathe of emotions, not to rule our lives, not to dictate our lives, but to reveal to us what is actually important. And we are to go to God with those emotions, with that pain, heartache, worry, anxiety, fear, and we cast those things onto him. Because he is so much bigger than any of that. That God wants us to be real and he wants us to pray passionately. Verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. All right, so on first glance, what it looks like Hannah is doing here is she's bargaining with God, right? And let's be honest, we've all been there. Uh, no matter how good your theology is, we all get to that place where we're like, God, if you just get me out of this mess, then I promise I will never do it ever again. Uh, or we want something really bad, and so we start like offering things up to God, and there's like different levels of things you can offer. So you're like, okay, God, if you just give me this, then um, I'll pray more often. Or, or I'll go to church more often, or I'll, uh, I'll read my Bible more. That well, We sort of like have this bargaining thing with God, but that's not actually what is happening here. See, what Hannah is doing in this moment is she is laying down her desires to God. Essentially, she's saying, hey, God, all of my life I have wanted a child. But if I'm honest, I've actually always wanted that child for me. But, but now, God, I want the child for you. See, when she says, no, raise yourself, touch his head, uh, what she's talking about is a Nazarite vow. Uh, and so a Nazarite, it, it comes from the word in Hebrew, Nazar, uh, which means separated. And, and essentially what it is, it, it's this way of entering into the priesthood uh, without being born into the right lineage. So the way it worked in ancient he, uh, Israel is in order to be a priest, you have to be descended from the line of Levi. Uh, but if you weren't, you could make this Nazarite vow and then you could go and work in the temple. All right, so essentially there's three things you promise. You're, you're never gonna cut your hair. Uh, you're never gonna drink alcohol and you're never gonna to touch a dead person. And if you made that vow, then you're allowed to go and work in the temple as sort of like an intern. But look, what that means for Hannah is that in this moment, she's actually giving up every reason she could have ever had for wanting a kid. Because you see, that kid's gonna go live in the temple. And so she's never gonna have that moment of walking into the market with a child on her hip and everyone seeing that she's actually got a son. And she's never gonna provide a, another kid to work at the family business and provide financial security to the household. And, and what's worse, as soon as that child is old enough to be out of diapers, he's going straight to the temple. So she's never gonna have the, the emotional joy and richness of seeing that son being raised in her own home. That every social, emotional, and financial reason Hannah could have had for wanting a child is being laid down in that moment. 
You see, once she has fully submitted her desires to God, what that allows her to do is it allows her to pray boldly. See, now she doesn't have to skirt around the issue anymore. She doesn't have to take her 10 minutes to build up uh, her courage to ask God. She just comes straight out and comes and asks him. And, and look, do you, do you know that the way you pray to God, the way, the way you ask God for things, it actually reveals what you believe about God? I mean, have you ever prayed with someone, right? And they're like, Lord, if you would just heal Jimmy's broken arm, we would be ever so grateful. Unless, Lord, it is not in your will to heal Jimmy's arm, and uh, in that case, we just want you to let Jimmy's arm going on being broken. But Lord, we do ask that if you have predestined before time that Jimmy would be healed of this moment, then you would just go ahead, you would just show up and you would do that, Lord. And, and I like poor Jimmy is left there wondering if God actually cares about him and, and wants to, to heal him. But that, that says something, right? It says something about what you believe God can and can't do in this world and, and how he thinks about us. So look, if all we ever pray is these small prayers, maybe that means we believe God is a small God. Like if all we ever pray is that God would bless the food to our bodies and give us parking spots, maybe that's all we think God can do. And look, if we, all we pray is like these rote memorization prayers, then maybe that means we believe God is like this judicial and rules-based God who only answers prayers if we pray in the exact right way. And look, if we're not praying, well, maybe that means we don't think God cares at all. See, church, we need to be a people who are so aware of our relationship with God so, so desperate for him to move in and through our lives that we just come to him and we flat out ask. We need to be a people who pray bold-faced prayers like, God, if you will just give me a son, then I will give him back to you, that, that Hannah is praying boldly. And, and so look, let, let me ask you another question that may be offensive because apparently that's what I'm doing this morning. Um, <laughs> if God came to you and said yes to every request, you prayed in the last seven days. How would the world be different? Would there be less poverty in the world? Would your friends and family know Jesus better? Would this church and the church in large be bringing the light of Jesus into the world in a brand new way? Or would the only difference be that the food was blessed to your body and you know, your, your drive into work was a little bit quicker? And look, I'm not saying that you can't pray for those things, that you, you go ahead, pray that God blesses your food, pray for a car park, but if that is the sum total of your prayer life, then you need to ask yourself what you believe you are actually doing when you pray. See, Hannah in this moment is praying like she believes God can actually do something about her situation. Even the fact that she calls him Lord of hosts indicates something. Literally in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh Tzavaot, which can be translated as Lord of hosts, God of army angels, Lord God Almighty, or the Lord of power. That she is praying like God is a God who still moves in power, who still does miracles, and who still holds the whole world in his hands. And church, do you know that God is a God who can do impossible things? That God is still in the business of moving mountains, healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, bringing lost people back onto himself. That he's still in the business of opening up barren wombs and emptying graves. 
And church, do you know how I know that? I just look to the cross. Because you know what the most impossible prayer any of us could have ever lifted up to God? Save me. That God would reconcile sinners like me and you back into a relationship with him is an impossible feat, and yet the one prayer that God will always answer with a resounding yes is that prayer, save me. See, church, God is a God who who answers impossible prayers. And so what he calls us to do is he calls us to lay down our desires and then go to him and pray these bold, audacious prayers. And so verse 12, as Hannah continued praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. All right, lastly, Hannah prays persistently. See, she doesn't just go away and and say her five minutes of prayers and then come back to the party. She continues to pray. And look, the way the tenses work out in the Hebrew is every time we're told Hannah is pleading with God or, or, or she's praying to God, the imperfect tense is used. Implying this is something she is continuing to do. And, and look, from my last insulting question for the, the morning, um, how long do you pray before you give up? You know, you know what I do? I'll, I'll get like really fired up on a Sunday, right? Like, like Sandy or Pat will be preaching this word and like it'll convict me of like, I need to go away and I need to go pray about that. And so I get home and I pray for many, many days. Sometimes I even make it through to Tuesday. <laughs> but it's like, I don't, see, I don't see the response, right? I don't see the immediate result of my prayer, and so I give up. And it makes no sense, right? Because you know how Jesus tells us to pray. So, so in the Gospels, he gives this, um, the disciples come to him, they're like, hey, Lord, how do we pray? And he gives them what we know is the Lord's Prayer. And then he tells them this parable. He says, imagine you're at home in the middle of the night and someone rocks up unexpectedly. And you let them into your house and, you know, hospitality is really important in those days and you've got nothing to give them. He says, imagine that you go to your next door neighbor and you start knocking on the door. And you start saying, hey, I need some bread. And look, your neighbor's asleep. He doesn't want to get up because he sleeps on the floor and his kids sleep next to him, so he's going to have to wake up the whole household to get up. And he's going to have to turn the lights on. He's going to have to go searching in the pantry, and he's, he's irritated and excited. He doesn't want to get up. And, and yet what Jesus says, if you keep on knocking, if you keep on saying, give me that bread, give me that bread, please, I want that bread, then even that guy who hates your guts, who is being woken up in the middle of the night, he will eventually get up, and the the verse says, because of your shameless audacity, and he will give what you have requested. That is how we're supposed to pray. That we knock, and we knock, and we knock, and then we knock some more, and then we knock when it doesn't make sense, and then we knock when it hurts to keep on knocking, that we just keep on knocking until God answers. And, And is the point of that parable that God is like this grumpy neighbor who doesn't want to give us what we want? No. But if that sort of person will respond to your persistent requests, how much more so will a good God who loves you? And look, in my week of study, I came across thousands of stories of of people who prayed like that. 
Because you see, for the last 2,000 years, every great theologian, missionary, or evangelist that we know about today, nearly every one of them has this life that is marked by that sort of prayer. Uh, in, in fact, um, oh, who was it? Wesley. Uh, Wesley prayed so often next to his bed, every day, that he literally carved grooves into the hardwood floor where his knees were on the ground. But look, the, the, the best story I found talking into this sort of prayer is the case of a man named George Mueller. Uh, so in November 1844, George Mueller began praying for five people who were the sons of uh, a close friend of his. And this is what he said. In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission. Whether I was sick or in health, whether I was on the land or on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might have been. And so 18 months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and I prayed on for the others. A further five years elapsed and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and I prayed on for the other three. And day by day I continued to pray for them and six years passed before the third was converted. And so again, I thank God for the three and I went on praying for the other two, though these two remain unconverted. That Mueller would go on praying for those last two boys for another 36 years, day in, day out. Until towards the end of his life, he once said during an interview, I have been praying every day for 52 years for these two men, sons of a friend of my youth. And they are not yet converted, but they certainly will be. For how can it be otherwise? That Mueller would continue praying for those last two boys until the day he died. And only after his funeral did both of those last two come to faith. Because that is what it looks like when you pray boldly, when you pray persistently, and when you pray passionately, and that is how we are to pray. And so verse 14, and, and the banking start coming up. Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. So do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. And look, the order matches here, right? Because the order isn't pray pregnant peace. The order is pray peace pregnant. That Hannah walks away with contentment about the situation before any solution is given. That Hannah trusted God with the outcome before she had received it. And so verse 19, they rose early in the morning, they worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ram. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked him from the Lord. 
that God responded in due time. The church, I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but God's timing is not our timing. And for whatever reason, he's very rarely early, but he's never late. See, church, our prayers do something. They do. And, and throughout the history of this thing we call Christianity, God's people have always been a praying people. So much so that John Wesley once said, I am convinced that God does nothing on this earth except in response to prayer. And look, I'm not sold on that theology, but if that is true, if God actually hears every single one of our prayers and he remembers them all, how can we not pray? How much are we missing out on if we do not bathe every single thing we do in our lives, in our communities, in this church, in prayer? So we're gonna finish in a little bit of a different way. Because uh, normally at the end of the service, we say, hey, if you would like to receive prayer for anything, come forward and the prayer team will pray for you. And that's still going to be available and, and they'll be floating around at the front if you want to do that. But I don't know, it, it's not just the prayer team that can pray for people. And so the, the way I would like us to respond as a, as a community, as a congregation of people that are following after Jesus, that we would all come forward and lift up our prayers to God. Not necessarily come to receive prayer, but come to lift up prayer to a God who actually hears those sort of prayers. And so if you are here this morning and you are in some serious pain, that there's something that is sitting on your heart and it's just, it is eating you up and inside and it just hurts and it hurts and it hurts and it makes no sense, then you come forward and you lift it up to God. You pray your tears to God because He hears them. And look, whether that, that is infertility or, or whether that's a, a prodigal son or chains of addiction or, or some sort of physical ailment, you just come forward and you just pray that God would intervene into that situation. And, and look, if you're here this morning and you don't have that sort of pain sitting on your heart, then I don't want you to stay in your seats. I still want you to come forward and I want you to find someone who is in that sort of situation and you pray for them. And that you put your hand on them and you just start praying that God would be present in that space. And look, if you can't find anyone to pray for, then, then I would just say come forward and, and pray over what God is doing here in Kenwa. Because church, we need to be a people who pray and trust and, and we cannot afford to be doing anything in this community. Anything in Kenmore, anything in the church, in our lives without bathing it in prayer. So if you come forward and just pray that God would move in a powerful way, that people would come to know Jesus, that lives and eternities would be transformed, that the Lord of hosts would move in a powerful way. So I'm gonna pray and then I would just invite you to come forward. Each and every one of you come forward as the kingdom of priests and just pray and, and lift up our prayers to God. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who hears our prayers. That you are a God who, who, who sees our brokenness and our pain and then you walk through it with us. And Lord, I just pray right now you would just stir up something in each and every one of us in this room this morning. 
you would just stir up this heart that, that cannot help but come to our God, that you would stir up this desperation inside of us for you to move. And Lord, that as we come, as we come and respond, as we come and lift up our requests to you, Lord, you would hear them and you would move in a mighty way. That in this moment, this morning, that chains would be broken. That blind eyes would be opened, that, that the, the lame would walk, that anxiety be, would, would be lifted, depression would be lifted, Lord. People that are struggling with infertility would have their wombs filled with life. That God, you would come and move in a powerful way. Because Lord, we are desperate for you. To come and do what only you can do, Lord. In your name, amen.